or Joy or Blackberry or Blueberry or Crackleberry, whatever you've got, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're going to be there this morning. Have you ever witnessed something and immediately knew that it was weird or out of place? Last December, just December 2011, which in Decatur, Georgia, holiday shoppers exiting a mall and lunchtime diners leaving an Applebee's saw something that certainly grabbed their attention. There's a man in the parking lot by the name of Bill Robinson who is standing in the back bed of his pickup truck firing a 12-gauge shotgun into the air. And as frightened as it was, as time passed, all the witnesses agreed they couldn't figure out what in the world he was aiming at at all. So police were called and they came and they arrested Robinson on a misdemeanor firearm charge. But to this day, he still doesn't understand why he was arrested. In an interview with a local TV station, Robinson thought he righteously explained his actions. He said that all he was doing was just shooting mistletoe out of the tree so he could decorate his house for Christmas. Now he'd done this every year at Christmas time, though admittedly this was the first time he'd used a crowded mall parking lot as his target. When asked why he chose the shotgun for the job and not, say, a saw or something, Robinson said, well, it's just the best way I knew how to do the job. When pressed by police and the media as to whether or not he could understand how this could cause panic, he said, well, about the time I did it, I got to thinking about it, and I guess I just assumed everybody would know what I was doing. Well, see, despite Mr. Robinson's objections, it's pretty safe to assume that someone shooting a shotgun into the air in a crowded mall parking lot at Christmas time would create a stir. And for the past few months in this ministry, in response to a vision that was set forth last fall by our pastor, we've been pursuing the person of Jesus Christ. And so we started on that journey by moving beyond asking what would Jesus do to asking the more important question, why did he do that? And then we spent some time on Sunday mornings covering the outrageous joy that can be found only in him. And then we looked in recent weeks at Eye Impact and reminded that any pursuit of Christ realizes that his mission was to seek and to save those who were lost. And if your heart is a heart that falls out to Christ at all, it's willing to partner with him in the mission of bringing others to him. Well, something else we must realize is that when Jesus came to the scene around 2,000 years ago, he created quite a stir. The Gospels describe crowds of thousands crushing up against him and following him around almost like a hectic mob. Controversy surrounded him everywhere he went as people constantly questioned his teachings, his authority, his identity, everything. And often we wrongly attribute the buzz and the mania that surrounded Christ due to his ability to perform miracles. And why that didn't hurt, one of the main reasons that Jesus created such a stir was the whole experience was just so weird. You see, Jesus didn't teach like anyone had ever taught. What Jesus valued, no one in his day valued. The people that Jesus pushed against, nobody else stood up to. And the people that he embraced, nobody gave time to or, or, or valued. And constantly, time and time again, it seemed like almost every time he opened his mouth, he would just destroy or topple over some idealistic value that those in his days held dear. Nobody had ever seen anything like Jesus. And then one night, toward the very end of his earthly ministry, in fact, the night before the cross, he gathered his closest disciples and followers, and he was preparing them for life after his departure, and he told them this in John 16. He said, by the way, you who follow me, guess what? You are no longer of this world. 
You don't belong to it. And so you're not going to look like it. Jesus was literally saying that his followers should be weird. And not in an off-putting, unattractive, quirky kind of way, but the things that we value, the things that we pursue, the things that we hold dear, the decisions that we make, the priorities that we put in place in our lives, they should all be so different and so unique to the ways of this world that we should stick out and be recognized for them. And so we're going to start a series today that, that we're calling Living Upside Down. And we're calling that because we're going to look at a series of statements made by Jesus in Matthew 5 where he just talks about life. He talks about living life and more specifically about how to live life in a way that God will bless it. And Jesus is going to give us a list of things that God values and deems as blessed. And wouldn't you know it, each one of these will be the opposite of what his audience valued and what they viewed as blessed. It was literally as if Jesus was taking their entire value structure on life and just flipping it upside down on its head. That's how far they missed the mark. And guess what? It's how far we continue to miss the mark. You see, Jesus did not come to be our moral guide or our moral precedent, though that's what we've made him out to be. Jesus really wasn't interested in, in making us out to be good people, though we've turned him into a religion whose goal is just that. No, Jesus came to save you from your sin, and not only from your sin, he came to save you from yourself. He came and suffered and died to be your everything so you wouldn't have to be. And in that process, he's gonna, he wants to take everything that you hold dear, every value system that you've been taught to put into place, everything that you've been taught to pursue and chase and esteem on this earth, and he wants to completely flip it on its head. Because he knows left to ourselves, we're going to pursue the opposite of what he wants us to pursue. And so at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, we're told that Jesus looked out and he saw the great crowd following him. That's the buzz, that's the stir, that's the mania that we were talking about. And so we're told that he went up on a mountain in order to sort of of separate himself and get away. And he sat down and we're told that his disciples came to him. Now this group was more than the 12 whose names we know. But though we, we don't really know the numbers, we know that at least in Acts, there were at least 120 disciples left at the beginning of the church. But regardless of the numbers, this group that Jesus is going to be talking to are the people who had at least begun the process of following Jesus and adhering to his teaching in their lives. And for the next three chapters, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7, he's going to teach them about life. And we call this the Sermon on the Mount, but it's really just Jesus speaking about life. That's all it is. Because throughout his ministry, Jesus had a lot to say about eternity. But thank God, he is also greatly concerned and has a lot to say about life here on this earth. Because that's what we're experiencing. That's what we're living right now. And so he opens his most famous sermon, if you will, by talking about a blessed life. So look with me at Matthew 5 and verse 2. It says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens his most famous teaching with this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, he's a master teacher. Don't think that this introduction is by accident. But also don't think this wouldn't have sounded very strange to his audience. You see, humanity in general just does not value being poor in any way at all. In any way. We've long looked at any level of poverty as as the opposite of any kind of blessing. In fact, it's often been viewed as some kind of curse from God. 
And yes, it's true. When Jesus says poor in spirit, he's not talking to physical riches. He's not talking to money or earthly wealth. What Jesus is talking about is your spiritual standing before God. But in that truth makes the statement by Christ no less radical. In fact, in his day, it would make it even more radical. Because during the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, there was a set religious structure in place. And there's a set hierarchy in place. And everyone understood it. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had studied, observed, and memorized the Old Testament law that God had given them through Moses. But there was an unintended consequence from this arrangement. Because the idea and the purpose, the original idea and the purpose of God's law was to make humanity aware of their sin and cause them to turn in repentance to God and seek his forgiveness. But instead of using the law to compare themselves with the holiness of God and be driven into repentance, what the Jews had done was use the law as a benchmark to which they would compare each other. They would also use it to compare themselves to other nationalities and peoples. And what had happened was that the law became more important than God. Over the years, the law became more important than God. What had happened was someone's obedience to the law had become more important than a heart that followed after God. And so they formed in their society, in their religious structures, they formed a hierarchy and a value system that was based entirely on how literally you observed every little detail of the law. And there were clear haves and have-nots, and everyone was aware of the structure. And so over the centuries, they've gone from David writing, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, to the law actually being used for evil. Now you'd assume that, that obedience to God would make someone more like him, right? That's what I would assume. But you see, they weren't obeying God at all. Instead, what they were doing, they worshipped and followed a list of rules, forgetting completely about the God who gave them to him. And what had happened was the more and more and more someone had adhered to this law, the more and more arrogant and unloving and unapproachable and prideful and judgmental they became. They actually began to worship themselves so much that they added hundreds of ceremonial laws for no other reason than the fact that they could keep them and then turn around and look down on others who couldn't. And so instead of a community of faith and a community of love and unity and cooperation as they strive to worship and learn more about God, they became a divided community whose sole aim was self-promotion and self-preservation through observance of a law. And it was taught clearly into all to have value in the eyes of God, you must be rich in spirit. That your standing with God is based upon you. And if life is good, and if you are rich, and if you're one of the haves, and there's no major tragedy in in your life, and there's no illness in your life, then it's because God is just so impressed with you. He's rewarding you for your obedience. But man, if you were poor, or you're suffering from an illness, or, or you didn't have what others have, you must, the only logical explanation is that you were a lawbreaker. And God had removed his favor from you because you just didn't deserve it. And the worst part of it all is that this belief played out in everyday life. Those who were in positions of religious authority, those who had access to what God taught and desired, those who should have known better. They didn't minister to the poor. They didn't bother to help the sick. They didn't counsel or love the hurting. They didn't seek the lost. They didn't impact the sinners. They didn't pursue others. And they didn't because they convinced themselves that God loved them and not all of those. 
and that they had earned their love, that love through their obedience. You see, to be poor in spirit, to view yourself as nothing, to freely admit that there's nothing good in you compared to a holy God was not only a foreign idea in Jesus' day, it would have been vehemently opposed and ridiculed and tossed out as not the genuine item. And it's in the epicenter of that religious environment, it's at the height of that teaching where Jesus opens his most famous sermon by saying, I am here to tell you that you are blessed, not when you are rich in spirit, but when you are poor in spirit. You are blessed, not ridiculed. You are blessed, not cast out. You are blessed, not ignored. You are blessed, not looked down upon. You are blessed, not devalued. You are actually blessed when you see and recognize and admit your spiritual poverty. Because being poor in spirit goes beyond realizing that worship and life is not about you. It's taking a whole other step in realizing it's impossible that those things could ever be about you. This is shocking. This would have been shocking for Jesus' hearers. The saddest part of all, that being God, he'd been trying to tell them for years. It's all over the New Testament, or the Old Testament. Luckily, not everyone missed it. In Psalm 51, David writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, God is speaking when he says in verse 17, God says, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isaiah 66, God is speaking again. He says, this is the man, this is the one who I esteem. He who is humble, he who is contrite in spirit, and he who trembles at my word. You see, the great irony of the Jewish system was faith was that they had heralded a a law and told stories of Old Testament heroes while completely missing the value that God was trying to teach them through those things. Because throughout their week, they would fight with each other for positions of authority. They would do everything they could to move up the social ladder. They would openly campaign for positions they desired. And then on Saturdays, they would go to the synagogue and open the scrolls, and they would hear about the people that God would appoint as leaders. How when God's angel came to Gideon and called him a mighty warrior, and Gideon responded by saying, who am I? I'm the least in my family, and and our clan is the weakest in all of Israel. And God says, great, you're my guy. Or how Moses, when appointed by God to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to release his people, said to God, "Why, why in the world would you send me? I can't even speak in public. And God says, yes, don't forget that. It's actually part of the reason why I chose you. Or how Isaiah fell on his face at just a brief glimpse of God and said, woe is me. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And God says, you're just what I'm looking for in a prophet. Don't ever forget how unclean you are compared to me. From the beginning of time, every appointment God made, every leader he chose, every person whose life he had done mighty things through, they all had the same characteristic. They were all fully aware that they did not deserve anything God was doing in their life. And none of them could have accomplished what he was asking of them on their own. And and the Jewish religious leaders had taken that law from that God and set up a structure in which self-promoting, self-campaigning, and self-sufficiency were valued and praised. And here's the truth. It's no different today. It's no different at all. 
Because the majority of people in our day are living their lives chasing after a lie. And the lie that they are chasing is that they believe that they are or will be enough. Left to themselves, they'll find fulfillment. Left to themselves, they'll find purpose or they'll find eternity. They'll find anything they need. See, this plays out in all kinds of different areas of belief and religion and faith, but they all end up with the same message. Whatever you want to call it, morality or enlightenment or nirvana or fulfillment or paradise, whatever word you want to use, it's all achieved through your own personal effort. Regardless of what term they give it, they live life daily chasing whatever it is their fleeting desires long for in that moment. And if you stand back and you observe our world and our society from afar, it does seem as if people pursue and worship a whole variety of things. It seems like there's all kinds of different systems of belief and faith out there. But in actuality, in all actuality, they're all worshiping the same thing themselves. When it comes down to it, they're all worshiping themselves. When it comes to life, when it comes to God, when it comes to purpose and fulfillment, they are banking on themselves and their own efforts. They're gambling that their own level of belief and understanding and goodness will be enough. They might speak of values, but they don't really know what those values are based upon. They might speak of belief or call themselves a spiritual person, but it's belief in a distant God or an idea of God, not a thriving, dynamic, active, personal relationship with their creator. They might speak of forgiveness, but but only between people, not between them and a holy God. Sadly, I've even had multiple people say with their own lips these types of things to me. I'm a spiritual person. I pray. I'm a good guy. I think God should be good with that. I even had one guy tell me, hey, just stop. Stop worrying about me. Me and God will strike up a deal. All the while, a holy God sits in heaven and wants to ask, excuse me, but when did man ever get the right to negotiate with me? You see, if you're banking on religion, if you're banking on your own level of goodness or your own amount of spirituality to get into the good graces of God, there's something that you need to know. If you're trying to earn your way into God's favor at all, God has something he wants to point out to you. Because in the 57th chapter of Isaiah, God is speaking to a group of people who are not poor in spirit, people who thought their deeds would be enough. And this is what he tells them in verse 12. He says, I will expose your righteousness and your works. And then he says this, and they will not benefit you. This is what God's telling humanity. Let's just put it all out on the table. Show me every ounce of your goodness. In fact, I'm God. I know everything. I'll do it for you. I'll expose all the best things about you. We'll leave nothing unturned. I'll show and declare and put on display every ounce of goodness and righteousness that is in you. And then we'll compare your righteousness to mine. And we'll compare your goodness to mine. We'll compare your holiness to my perfect standard. And God says that will not end well for you. You will not like the outcome of that game. Which is why Jesus says, you are blessed not when you are rich in spirit, but when you are poor in spirit. The moment that you realize there's nothing that you could ever offer to God. 
The moment you come to the understanding, you cannot negotiate or strike up a deal with God. The moment that you understand you cannot earn your way into, God, into God's good favor. And that you understand fully that you are desperate, you are lost, you are a sinner, and you have no hope of heaven within yourself. And there's no card to play, there's no strategy to deploy, there's no trick to pull out. There's nothing that you can do but fall on your face before God and say, I am a sinner and could never be good enough for you. And Jesus says, that's the stuff. You get there, you understand that, you'll be blessed. That's what being blessed looks like. And your reward, by the way, is the kingdom of heaven. It's when you lay down and surrender that Jesus says, I'll fight for you. It's when you stop trying to pay your price that Jesus says, hey, I'll write the check for you. It's when you stop trying to be your everything that Jesus says, perfect, let me be your everything. He's declaring with the opening words of his most famous teaching, I came here for this. I came to suffer and die and pay the price for you. I came because your goodness will never be enough. But if you just admit that and place your trust in me, my goodness will be enough for you. See, to be poor in spirit is to be humble enough to realize you're not the answer and you never will be. To be poor in spirit is to stop trying to earn your way to God and let him bring you in. To be poor in spirit is to be blessed by God and your reward is an eternity in the kingdom of heaven. But you see, even in the midst of that reward that Jesus speaks of, we can miss out on what Jesus is truly offering here. Far too often when we hear Jesus use the term kingdom of heaven, we only think of the future. By the way, this is a good thing because what a future it is. The Bible promises a new heaven and a new earth. God living with his people. There being no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no death. It's literally a hope that can be never taken away. But as wonderful and as true and as assured as that is, that is not the only thing Jesus is referring to here. If you're looking in Matthew, look up just a few verses towards the end of Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 17. Because Jesus has something really interesting to say here. This is before he even started the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says in Matthew 4 verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, 2,000 years ago, by the way, that's the time. Jesus began to preach saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't miss this. The kingdom of heaven is here now. And as wonderful and as indescribable as heaven will be, Jesus has offered you isn't just eternal fire insurance. He came to offer you life, eternal life, and eternal life begins now. And if you've called out to him and you've trusted him for forgiveness, the fullness of that kingdom will be yours in the future. And you can have hope in that. But the kingdom is active right now in this place on this earth. The kingdom is active wherever you go. Jesus says in John 5, to this very day my father is working and I too am working. And hear this, the life that you were created to experience, the full abundant life that Jesus refers to in John 10, is a life that experiences the kingdom of heaven while living on this earth. And Jesus says, if you want that life, if you want to experience what God actually has for you now and not just then, there's one thing, just one thing you need to do. You need to be poor in spirit. Because you see, the truth is that even for those who God has brought us to a point in our life 
where we recognize our need for him and call out on him to save us, we still face a great temptation. That temptation is to become rich in spirit once again. We do this in all kinds of ways. Sometimes it's by sort of placing our life in a section. We sort of put spirituality and faith and, and, and God's in that over here. We trust him completely for our, for our salvation and we know there's nothing we can do. But, but then we kind of have our secular life over here. We believe that there we, we live and we're self-sufficient. We say things with pride like, for so many years I provided for my family. I've built, I've built this thing with my own hands. Or I'm a driven person. I set my goals and I accomplished them. But you see, even when we take that attitude of self-complimenting, even when we're patting ourselves on the back, we aren't asking a very important question. Just who do you think gave you that job? Do you actually believe you got that on your own? Just who do you think gave you your talents or your gifts or your intelligence or your skills? You honestly think that those were formed by your own efforts? Who do you think puts drive and willpower in you? You honestly think that, that you're the one who deserves the credit for your accomplishments in life? This is what James says. He says that every, not some, not most, but every good and perfect gift comes from above. And the moment that we lose sight of that, the moment we start patting ourselves on the back, we get rich in spirit. We also get rich in spirit when we try to take the place of God. Just momentarily try to do his job for him. Before you object to this and think that this isn't you, this is you, you do this. You try to serve in his role. This is when we decide that even in the smallest of areas, our opinion weighs more than God's. This is when the teaching of God's word are seen as suggestions, not commands, and, and therefore they can just be easily explained away. This is when we question everything in God's word that is hard for us to follow. Are we, are be, we are beating to God as long as others in our lives don't offend us. Or this is when in the face of suffering we think that even for a second we have a better way of doing things. This is when we give other things priority in our lives over him. Because in that decision, that one decision, we are deciding that he's already received enough of us and he should be satisfied. And every time we disobey, we are deciding in that moment that we know better than God. This is the person who God is asking to make a huge life change, to, to go the less safe route, to change jobs, reverse plans, and they just don't. Choosing what they think to be the safer route is. This is a person who's been given great blessings and resources, only they just turn around and invest it just in themselves and not the kingdom. This is a person with talents who's, who's, who can, that can be used for God's glory, only they either use it only for themselves or just hide it and don't use it altogether. It's the person who's facing a terribly confusing, difficult time, and yet God asks them to just trust in him and who he is, but instead their response is to get angry and bitter. This is you. This is me. Every time we choose some fleeting sin over what God would have for us in that moment, it is you, it is me every time we disobey. What we are doing is stating with our life and our actions that our way is better, our ideas are better, our plans are better than God's. And as a result, always, the people around us get hurt. We miss out on blessings in our lives, and we don't experience what the kingdom has for us here and now. 
See, Jesus wants to reign in your life. He wants to be your Lord. And not, it's not because he's power hungry. It's because he, wants, he knows what's best for you. I mean, God made you. He created you. And he wants to make you whole. But he cannot, he cannot have room to work for someone who already believes they are whole or is already so full of themselves. Wherever you are in that spectrum this morning, this, this presentation of poor in spirit by Jesus, really it's going to play out one of three ways in your life. And before we even describe them, I'm begging you to realize this morning, one of these ways is so much better than the other two. The first way that this can play out is that you just go the rest of your days rich in spirit. You just continue to believe that you are enough. You can bank on being a good or spiritual or religious person, whatever you want to call it. You can believe that you don't need Christ. You don't need his death. You don't need forgiven by God because everything that you need is actually within your reach. Just know that the Bible says that if that's how that plays out, you will not be blessed. It will not end well for you. You will not experience the kingdom of heaven here or ever. And you will actually experience an eternity separate from the loving God who created you because you never called out to him in, in desperate faith. Because here is the raw truth of the matter. This is the truth. From now and until the end of time, hell is full of and will be full of people who thought they deserved heaven. And heaven will be full of people who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they deserve hell. That's the difference between the two places. Do not stay rich in spirit. Do not bank on yourself. It is our prayer that God will break through and chisel off that hard layer of your heart that thinks that you are enough. Because God himself said, I'm going to expose your righteousness and it will not end well for you. The second way that this can play out is that God himself brings you into a state of poverty. D.L. Moody was talking to a shepherd from Scotland one day about the process that they would go through um, to save sheep. And the sheep in that country, in Scotland, they, they have a propensity to wander off into these steep mountainous terrains in the rocks and get places that they can't get out of. Because the grass is high up on the mountain, it's very sweet, sweet and the sheep like it, so they would literally sometimes jump down ledges 10 to 12 feet high in order to eat it. And when, they've, when they're there and they've eaten all the grass, they're stuck because on one side, there's a 12-foot wall. On the other side, there's an edge that falls off and they would fall to their death. And so they begin bleeding in distress. But he told them that when the shepherds hear them, they actually wait for days before they go rescue them. They wait until the sheep is so weak, it cannot even stand on its own and it's at the point of death. And then and only then do they go down and put a rope around it and pull it to safety. Moody asked the obvious question, why do you have to wait until they're so weak? And the guy told him, it's because those animals are so very stupid that if we went to them, when they had energy at all, in their excitement, they would run right over the edge and kill themselves. Last month, during a Wednesday night study on Nebuchadnezzar, Mark Toby uttered a line that I immediately wrote down. He said, it is much easier to watch. It is so much easier to watch when a man humbles himself than when God has to do it for him. I hope you all realize 
that God reserves the right to bring you to a point where you don't have any choice but to be poor in spirit. He can't, in a manner of speaking, put your life on the edge with no grass to eat and force you to get weak. Because it's the only way you'd ever recognize him. See, sometimes people in the hardness of their hearts, they need to come to the end of their rope before they call out to God. Sometimes they need to hit rock bottom and realize that God is still there before they submit to him. He took his own prophet Jonah to the belly of a fish at the bottom of a sea to make him poor in spirit. And he reserves the right to do the same in your life. Because in his grace and in his love, if that's what it takes for you to trust him, he'll do it knowing long term you'll be better off. And there's one last way this can play out. And let me strongly suggest this one. James chapter 4 verse 10, the Bible tells us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, this is the person who in humility realizes that they have nothing that God has not given them. So in humility and in brokenness, they ask God to change their hearts, to remind them constantly of who he is and who they are. So that eventually their hearts could speak the words of David and Psalmates when he wrote, God, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, at the moon and the stars that you set in place, what is man that you are even mindful of him? See, David came to a point in his life where he realized we don't even deserve to have God waste a single thought on us. Do you know this morning that God owes you nothing? No blessings, no explanations, nothing. And yet he died to offer us life. Yet he desires to, to work through us and in us. He wants us to live in his power, not our own. Maybe, maybe it's just this simple today. Maybe we all need reminded of the simple fact that he is God and we are not. And that's just the way it is. So really, don't answer this how you want to answer it. Answer it in reality. Really, who have you been worshiping lately? God or yourself? Really, whose power have you been living in? Are you doing anything that requires faith? Are you living in God's power? Or are you doing it all within your own power? Really, who in your life and in your decisions and in your actions have you been more reliant upon? God or yourself? And really, who have you been giving the credit to? Just a moment, Brandon and the team are going to come up and play a song. And, and every, every week we do this, we open these altars. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you this morning. I'm not going to act like it's not a humbling thing to walk up here in front of a church and kneel before God and ask him to forgive you. But I'll tell you, if there are areas in your life that you are living as if you are rich in spirit, if you are living as if you get the credit, then an act of pure humility is what God is looking for from you. And if you are his child, then at least know this this morning. Either you will humble yourself and let him exalt you, or eventually he's just going to humble you all on his own. If I were you, 
I'd run to him and his grace before that becomes a reality. Let's pray. Father, how great is the temptation to become rich in spirit? How great is it the temptation to live within our own power, and to trust in our own means, and then to turn around and, and pat ourselves on the back? How, gra- how, how great is the temptation for us to compare ourselves to each other or other people and begin to think that, that you're getting a good deal when it comes to us? But how great is the temptation to become prideful? So we're asking you this morning to do a work in us. Make us poor. Make us humble, Lord, because we couldn't do it on our own. And more importantly, in the spirit of this teaching from Christ, whatever happens in these next few moments, we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the credit. We ask this in Jesus' name.